This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area on center field almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. The F&M Schaefer Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. All full of a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Hi, and welcome to the season four premiere of the Lost Ballparks podcast. I'm Mike Kozer, and if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you know there are a collection of guys that are at the top of my wish list, and today's guest is definitely one of them. This interview has been a long time coming. The Wizard of Oz, Ozzy Smith. There goes Harris on a ground ball. Alice at the second for one, the double play. What a double play by Ozzy Smith. Oh, mercy. Ozzie Smith was a 15-time All-Star, world champion, 13-time Gold Glove winner, NL Silver Slugger, and a first ballot Hall of Famer. Ozzie Smith, welcome to the Lost Ballparks podcast. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Perfect. So you grew up in Los Angeles and would take an hour-long bus ride to Dodger Stadium to watch games. So was your first game that you watched, first major league game, was it at Dodger Stadium? Yes. Um, you know, actually, when we moved to California... Get the year 63, 64, whenever that was. Uh, we moved over on Avalon and we were across the street from the old Angel Stadium. For those who don't know, that ballpark was called Wrigley Field, Los Angeles. Yes, of course, we know Wrigley Field in Chicago, but back in the day, there was also Wrigley Field, Los Angeles, where the PCL Pacific Coast League Minor League Angels played. And then the MLB Expansion Angels played one season there in 1961. They later on in 62, I think through 65, played their games at Dodger Stadium while Anaheim Stadium was being built. That's where the old Home Run Derby, the TV show, was filmed. Well, hi there, everyone. I'm Mark Scott. And today on Home Run Derby, our three-time winner, Mickey Mantle, will meet one of the outstanding sluggers of the American League, Harmon Killebrew. How cool that you grew up right near Wrigley Field, Los Angeles. Beautiful old ballpark. Were you, uh, how close were you? So we lived in those apartments right across the street. So, um... The, the stadium had closed by that by that time. But, you know, I can remember walking over there as a kid and imagining to myself, you know, what it what it would be like to, you know, to go inside a, a major league stadium. And uh, as I got older and stuff, I, I mean, I, I don't think I had a real appreciation for it at that time because we, we were so young. But we used to just go over and have fun and throw rocks and never having a chance to go inside. And it wasn't until I had a chance to gain my mom's trust to allow us to go on the bus to Dodger Stadium that uh, I, I saw a big league stadium for the first time and the green grass under the lights. Yeah. And how did you convince your your mom? How old would you have been to take the hour long bus ride? I think I was, I was in my teens. I, you know, I was 15, 16 years old okay. at that time. Yeah. yeah. So this would have been like uh, late 60s, early 70s. What do you remember yeah. about, about that first taste of baseball and what stood out to you in particular about Dodger Stadium? Well, I, I think that for all of us, whether it was going to wrestling, which my mom loved. I can remember my early days back in Alabama, and they would have wrestling at stadiums where they had big lights. And I never could go because I was too young. But I remember the feeling of seeing this place lit up at night. And there's just something exciting about it that, you know, gave you butterflies in your stomach and stuff. And 
And then finally getting a chance to experience that in person, being able to, to walk into a ballpark and have a hot dog and Coke and stuff was, uh, was pretty cool. It was, it, it was a good feeling and it's something that never leaves, you know? And I, I think even to the, today, going to a ballpark where there are lights and there are plenty of people, I think it, um, it stirs something inside of you, you know, it gives you those butterflies. You and uh, Eddie Murray played on the same high school team. Uh, I think he was, was he a year younger than yeah. you? Yeah, How? Eddie's a, he's not a, he'll tell you he's so much younger than me, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm a year older than Eddie. How good was that yeah. team? We were, we were pretty good. We had a lot of good players. We we never could beat Robin Yount Taft though. <laughs> he was across yeah. town, right? Town, yeah. He was at, at Taft. He was out in the Valley, I think. And But uh, we had good teams. And Eddie and I probably played as much basketball as we did baseball. We had a lot of fun. And he'll tell you the only time I passed the ball was when I bounced it off my knee. You know? <laughs> 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 oh, that would have been but fun. No, to, but that was, was back, fun. that was back when kids played all sports too. That's right. That was that was when we spent a lot of time outside. But we could only spend time outside if we did our chores and um, got got decent grades. Eddie was drafted out of high school, but you went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo on, and people may not realize, on a partial academic scholarship. Yeah. And you walked onto the baseball team. Yeah, that was uh, that was it. And I explain to kids all the time that. The road to the big leagues is different for everybody. You know, people look at guys that have made it in the big leagues and guys that have made it to the Hall of Fame and they go, well, that road was paved with gold. All roads were not paved with gold and everybody was not a bonus baby. I certainly was not a bonus baby. Oz, wasn't there a moment at the end of your sophomore year in college, maybe beginning of your junior year, Mm -hmm. where you legitimately were giving thought to leaving the team, coming back home to Los Angeles? Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, I mean, for a a blip, we almost missed out on the wizard. Yeah, we... (laughs) You know, I think we all in our lives, we come up on those moments and times where we can look back now and say, had I gone in a different direction or made a different decision, things would have been totally different. I think, uh, I believe in Manifest Destiny, what's meant to be will be. And in this case, when I decided that things weren't moving along fast enough for me, I and I was away from home and I was a little homesick. And, and I decided, hey, I'll go back home and try and get a job or something. And this, this is not working out. But anyway, I called my mom and she immediately called my high school coach and he called me and said, hey, look here, here's the deal. You're going to stick it out. You're going to weather this storm because you're in the best place for you. Mm. And in some not not so kind words, yeah, <laughs> really. But that was one of those moments where, you know, you go right or you go left. And because the both of them had beliefs, had a belief in me and reinforced my belief in myself. And it was shortly thereafter that the varsity shortstop got hurt and I was able to step in. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. I never looked back uh, because I'd worked extremely hard to that point. And being a little guy, you know, you got to work twice as hard to, to prove yourself. And that never bothered me. It was just about getting the opportunity. You know, when the opportunity presented itself because of the, the work and the preparation and stuff, I was ready for that moment. And when I talk to kids, I talk about that small window. There can be a very small window of opportunity. And success is possible when preparation and opportunity meet. So you were taken by the Padres in the fourth round of the 1977 draft. And after playing 
In just 68 minor league games, you made your major league debut April 7th, 1978 at Candlestick Park. And as we move down inside this beautiful ballpark on San Francisco Bay, you're looking at where our game tonight is going to be played. What do you remember about Candlestick and about that day in particular, your first day in the big leagues? Well, it being the, the start of the season and, of course, my first big league season, knowing the battles uh, between Juan Marichal, Don Drysdale, Sandy Colfax, Gaylord Perry. I mean, this was all part of my youth growing up. Willie McCovey, one of my mom's favorite because Willie's from Mobile, where I was born. I knew a lot about Big Mac. And it was really kind of surreal having a chance to experience what Candlestick was from up in that time, just from on television. And so now here I am, a young a young kid starting his career in a storied ballpark against a storied franchise and getting my first hit against Jim Barr, getting the first base. And I don't remember what inning or what bad it was. I hit a base hit to left field and I get the first base and Willie McCovey gives me the ball and says, congratulations and many more. You wow. know, so that was how much better could it get than that? And I have what a, a great to, moment to share that with my mom and tell her that, you know, I got my first base hit from the ball was handed to me by her favorite player, Willie McCovey. And I guess it's at that moment that you realize that something special has happened in your life. On April 14th, I think this would have been a week later, you played your first game at San Diego Stadium, which of course was later named Jack Murphy Stadium. Randy is ready and to call the action, let's go over to Jerry Cook. What a night this is, a huge crowd on hand. Mm -hmm. That stadium went through a lot of changes in different configurations over the years, but what do you remember about what it was like in 1978 when you first got to the big leagues? Yeah, uh, it was special. I mean, I don't think a lot of us are real fond of the color of the uniforms, you know, because we had (laughs) mustard, yellow, and brown. And and we come to find out that the uniforms were designed with food and hunger, colors that make you hungry, you know, so... (laughs) (laughs) That was interesting. And, you know, I started my career with a lot of veteran players. You know, I had Gene Tennis. I had uh, Dave Winfield. Right. I had Gaylord Perry. I had Raleigh Fingers. Oscar Gamble came over at a time. Played with a guy named Gene Richards and Jerry Mumphrey. So there were a lot of guys that uh, we, we had some decent players. We just never were able to put it all together. That first year and having a chance to being the big leagues, was that was it, man. I, I'm not going to say that I had made it. I had made it to the big leagues, but I hadn't really made it as a player. You know, it's all about getting yourself established as a player. And, and I think my goal was to be as good a big league ball player as I could be for as long as I could be. And that never changed from the time I started playing baseball. The goal was to hopefully make it, get that opportunity to play in the big leagues and be able to say to my kids or my grandkids that your pawpaw or your grandpa played professionally. Looking at it now, it's, it, it's nice when your grandkid can come up to you. And I, I can remember walking into my son's house and my granddaughter was out playing with some friends in the neighborhood. She walks in and she goes, hey, pawpaw, are you famous? <laughs> I go, oh, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know that, I mean, it's it's something that tugs at the heart because right. it means that you accomplished something, something that is noteworthy. And she's innocent. She, she didn't really know. And I, I'm not sure that she really knows now. Because she's seven years old and she did this when she was five or six. Right. She'll be able to look back and read some of the things that I've been able to accomplish in my career and 
And uh, that means a lot to me. You know, she'll be able, able to look to, back on that on that on April twentieth, nineteen seventy eight, and watch that play where you robbed Jeff Burrows of a hit. Honestly, <laughs> one hop shot, diving play by Ozzy. Long throw, you wouldn't believe it. Oz, listen, I've been watching baseball for fifty years, and I've never seen a better play at shortstop than that one that night. Let, um, that was let unbelievable. Me, let me say to you that it wasn't until the next day that what you just said I heard on the radio. And, you know, because I'm I'm just doing what I do. The next morning, I was listening to the radio and, and the guy said, I think I saw the best play I've ever seen. And I'm thinking, well, baseball's been around a long time. And that was pretty special. But that was the one play that I think that put me on the map that made people start taking notice of what it was that I was able to do from a defensive standpoint. And, you know, I'll always be noted as, as a defensive player. But I took a lot of pride in, in making myself a better offensive player as well because I wanted to be a well-rounded. I think it's all of our goal to be well-rounded. I didn't want to be a one-dimensional player because there was always so much talk about, well, this guy is all glove and no hit. I always believed that there was no reason for me not to be a better offensive player if given the opportunity here again and my willingness to work on becoming a better offensive player. And I'd like I used to love some of the conversations that I had with Tony Gwynn, you know, when we played together on all-star teams and stuff, we always lockered next to each other. You know, I'd always ask him what, what had he, he not done that he'd like to do. And his goal as a great offensive player was to win himself a gold glove at some point in time. And he goes that way again, a drive the right center and deep. Gwynn goes back in front of the wall, leaps up. He got it. Tony Gwynn, who has won a gold glove, Saluted by Andy Ashby after taking a possible two-run homer away from Mike Piazza. And I think that our, from our generation of player, that was always our goal to be multidimensional, being able to play on both sides of the ball. And I think that's one of the things that was innate with uh, our generation of players. Such a great generation, too. That era was unbelievable. Um, speaking of the mm-hmm. All-Star Game, you made your first All-Star Game at Cleveland Municipal Stadium in 1981. Ladies and gentlemen... It is now time to meet the 1981 All-Star Squads. From the San Diego Padres, shortstop Ozzie Smith. And Oz, here you are with so many future Hall of Famers. <laughs> Gary Carter was on the team, yeah. Mike Schmidt, Andre Dawson, Tom yeah. Seaver, Tim Raines, and a bunch, of, a bunch of guys that you could make a strong case for being in the Hall of Fame, guys like mm-hmm. Pete Rose and Dave Parker and Vita Blue. What do you remember about that moment in Cleveland uh, in 1981, in August of 81? Well, I can remember uh, George Hendrick and Oscar Gamble talking about the mistake by the lake, you know, yeah. uh, that's what it was called. It was 80,000 yeah. people, you know, so you can get 40,000 and it still look empty. Right. Uh, but I think we were coming out. I think that's the way the season started, because I think it was a strike shortened season. Yeah, because it would have normally been played earlier in the summer. But yeah, that's it right. got moved to August. And I can remember. I think it was Tim Raines that got the, the go-ahead hit to win it. I think Mike Schmidt hit a home run. I think Gary Carter hit a home run. So Ken Forsh against uh, Gary Carter. Forsh allowed two earned runs in his last 27 innings pitch. Well hit. Deep to left field. Singleton going back. Back. We are tied. The National League was where the American League is now in domination of the All-Star game. And I oh, don't right. know it was necessarily because there was more talent. I think that the other team probably had as much talent, but I think there was more of a a drive and determination or or a willingness to sacrifice oneself to prove 
that our league was superior to the other league. A lot of pride in going out there and presenting ourselves as a national league. And here, this is that generational thing, I believe, that we were there to prove each and every year that we were a better league. Right. And somewhere down the line, that changed. But back then, it meant something. I mean, like- It meant, yeah. yeah. It meant something because for a lot of guys, getting to the all-star game meant a nice bonus. The money certainly is not like it is today. And so it was about being on that stage that said that, hey, I'm one of the special ones in this business. And to have the opportunity to play with the the likes of the game's greatest, you know, because that's where all the stars were that particular night. Yeah. And you certainly wanted to shine under those circumstances. And uh, and and guys did, you know, the, the big guys. And I've always said that you're great players have to perform in big moments if your team's going to win. And we certainly had some stars, you know, from Pete to Tim to Mike Schmidt to Gary Carter to Steve Gar. I I mean, the list just goes on and on of of great players and the people that have proven themselves to be Hall of Famers. At the end of 81, you were traded to the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals played at Bush Stadium 2 from 1966 to 2005. So it was about... 15 years old when you arrived. What were your impressions, some of the features or things that you liked about that stadium? You know, in the National League, the symmetry, the symmetry of stadiums was always, it's what I grew up on. It's 330 down the line. Now, it changed a little bit in the gaps, you know, somewhere 380. But you didn't have all of the partial part of it would be 365 and part of it would be 325. We didn't have all of those little small idiosyncrasies that you see in some of the older ballparks, like in Boston or in Wrigley Field. Well, Wrigley Field was was still, being in a National League park, was still had some symmetry to it. When you look at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, it's 330 down the lines. There's nothing shocking there, but it really falls away. 386 up the power alleys, and it is the deepest center field in the National League, 414. Which meant that we had to hit it to get it. And what made Bush Stadium so special, too, was that with the arches, when the sun would hit a certain way, you would get the sunlight would come into the place and shine a different way. And that was always fascinating to me and one of those things that really stood out. Yeah, and you'd get the shadows, the art shadows across the yeah. Yeah. surface. Across the surface uh, certain times during the day. And- you become a Cardinal in 82, and what perfect timing, Oz, because that yeah. team managed by yeah. Whitey Herzog could run like no other team in baseball. It featured a collection of stars who had super high baseball IQs. You, Keith mm-hmm. Hernandez, Tommy Herr, Obergfell, Willie McGee, Bob Forch. I mean, sweep the Braves in the NLCS, go on to face the Brewers in the 82 World Series. And that would have been the first time, I think, that you played at County Stadium. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. right. That was the first time. And you know what I remember about that was... My friend Willie McGee arguably had one of the best World Series games that I certainly that I ever had a, a, to be a part of. Well hit, way back. Listen to the reaction. Oh he boy! Did it. What a catch he made, Willie McGee. Willie McGee with the bat and with the glove has been a one-man show tonight. Was that Game Three? Yeah. Yeah, I game think three. that was Game Three against yeah. uh, Pete Vukovic, where he hits. You know, he hits a couple home runs. And now Willie and I got traded over at the same time. And when we broke camp, Willie didn't break camp with the team. David Green got hurt, and and Willie and I, who had become friends in spring training, 
was coming up to the club and I had a house. Uh, I was married. My wife and I had a house here in West County and uh, we didn't know how long Willie was going to be up. So we just invited him to come and live with us. And uh, two years later, Willie was still there. You At know? your house? He was Wait a second. He, he lived with uh, you guys for two uh, years? Uh, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm comfortable <laughs> here. You know, that's the one. Yeah, I, got, I got my old space. and No, it was great. He's got the best shortstop in baseball history, <laughs> making a breakfast, you know? Yeah, What's... I'll cook an egg. No, she did all the cooking. <laughs> but, you know, it was great because, you know, I could ride to the ballpark with Willie. Uh, we didn't do it every day because, you know, he had his own fast little car, but giving you somebody that you can talk baseball with. And we talked a lot of baseball. And I think that's what made our teams so good because we talked baseball. That's what we did. It was our craft. It was our business. We took it seriously each and every day out there playing in a place like St. Louis. People come to expect a certain level of excellence and the work ethic that comes from the ground. People were weaned on baseball here in this town. Tickets are passed down from generation to generation. So there's a lot of pride in wearing those birds on the bat. We knew that coming in and I knew coming over from San Diego that this was going to give me the best opportunity to experience what winning was all about. You're never as good as you think you are. And coming over here, I had a chance to answer a lot of those questions about myself because we do question ourselves, am I as good as I think I am? And so when you come to an organization like this, you get a chance to experience what winning is all about and what pride is all about and the experience of going through that, the ebb and flows of a, of a season. And there's no greater feeling than being able to, at the, at the end of it, with a group of 24, 25 guys to be able to stand and say, hey, we overcame a lot of different things during the course of the season, and, and now we can call ourselves world champions. Yeah, 82 was a season to remember for you and the St. Louis Cardinals. I can still remember watching the World Series, Cardinals, Brewers, Game 1 on TV. NBC Sports presents Game 1 of the 1982 World Series. The American League champions, the Milwaukee Brewers, against the National League champions, the St. Louis Cardinals. The crazy thing is, after that loss in Game 1, a 10-0 shutout by AL MVP Robin Yount and the Brewers, I don't think anybody would have predicted the Cardinals would come back and win the series, but Game 7 at Bush Stadium, you guys just found a way. Suter from the belt to the plate, a swing and a miss, and that's the winner! That's the winner! A World Series winner for the Cardinals! And in the clubhouse celebration after the game, Bob Costas grabbed a minute with you. Thanks again, Joe. We're standing with the Wizard of Oz, Ozzy Smith, and just a year removed from San Diego, the champagne's on your head and the championship trophy's on the table. I tell you, Bob, it's been, it's been an exciting year, you know, ever since the trade and, and coming over here and getting an opportunity to play with this group of guys that we have here. Ozzy, congratulations on an eye-popping year at shortstop and on the world champion. Thank you. Oz, I can only imagine what it's like to win a, a world championship like that. You, you talk with Bob Costas, you celebrate with your team and who was the first person that you called outside of the clubhouse? For me, it was it, it was my mom, you know, because in all of those hard times, it gives you a chance to look back on those moments that could have changed your history. You think about those moments of where I wanted to give up. And I think we all we all have those moments where you feel like, oh, boy, this ain't working. You know, uh, you know something's got to change. And, you know, you think about all those things. And for us. And when I say us, I'm talking about African-American players. Most of us have probably grown up in a broken home where the mom or the grandmom or the auntie or somebody is the person that you live with 
for the person that you're around all the time and the person that you get your guidance and your, your confidence and all of that from. For us, it, it wasn't just about me as a player being successful. It was about family, making it better for your family. Because if I fail, the family fails. Mm. So there's a lot of responsibility that goes with African-American players that, that come with making it to the major leagues, be it baseball, basketball, football, whatever. Like my mom used to tell me all the time, you can, you can accomplish anything that you put your mind to. And my high school coach, my college coach, everybody preaching the same message about working hard, being the very best that you can be, and ultimately knowing that I was only going to get out of it what I put in. If I didn't put anything in, I wasn't going to get anything in return. And how great to, after all those years in high school, facing Robin Yount and him maybe getting the best of you and Eddie Murray <laughs> in your high school team, <laughs> to then beat him on the biggest stage on the planet. Yeah, that, I, mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was a nice accomplishment. You never know exactly where you're going to end up, but things work out the way that they're supposed to. And I think one of the main reasons that we were able to beat the Brewers were because you know, we were a pretty fundamentally sound team. I think we hit 67 home runs. They had 230, 240 home runs. And right yeah, away, you think about all, think, yeah, Gorman yeah. Thomas. I mean, yeah, Ben Ogilvie and right. Cecil Cooper and Gantner and Molitor. And Ted Simmons Sim was on Simmons, team. Yeah, yeah, Simmons. Yeah, Simmons got us a couple times, I think, with, with, with bombs, you know, but that's the way they played. And we knew that as a team that if we could keep the ball in the ballpark, and catch and throw the way that we were capable of doing it. You know, th there was question after the first game that whether or not we'd be able to do it. But I think that one of the things that happened to us was that, you know, we were pretty good from an in instinctual standpoint, catching and throwing the baseball and positioning and all of that. And had a lot of smart, high IQ players on our team. And we relied on a scouting report from someone else in that first game. And I think that that was, that was one of the things that probably hurt us more than anything else is that in relying on a scouting, somebody else scouting, when instinctively we were pretty good. Uh, that's why we had gotten to where we had gotten. And I think that with Robin and, and Paul Molitor and Gantner, they, I mean, they ran a lot better than, than was publicized. We figured that out after the first game. And man, gee, these guys here, they, they're as fast as we are. They hit a lot of home runs, but boy, they... They can run good. They can run, man. And uh, we found that out. We didn't know that until after the first game. But after the first game, when we, we got our footing and, and we realized that, hey, why don't we just do it our way? We got an idea now. Uh, we know that we have to shorten up on the guys because if they don't hit it out of the ballpark, they can still run. So we changed things there a little bit. And, and our pitching did a great job. Our guys, you know, they, they kept their bats at bay. In 85, you provided baseball fans across the country with one of the all-time great postseason moments. Uh, it was the NLCS versus the Dodgers. The series was mm -hmm. tied two games apiece. You step up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth inning of game five, all tied up at two. Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run, and the Cardinals have won the game. You know, in 1985, I met a guy by the name, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Mackie Shillstone. And Mackie Shillstone had taken Michael Spinks from a light heavy to a heavyweight. In working out with Mackie, one of the things that I explained to him right away was that I wanted to be able to put two halves together. He always worked in the off season with weights and stuff. 
but halfway during the season, all of that was gone. So I wanted to incorporate nutrition and weight training together and add a new dimension to my, to my game. And so uh, 1985, uh, of course, I had learned to pull the ball a little bit better. And I wanted to get stronger, not necessarily to hit the ball out of the ballpark, but to back the defense up. And all of those things came together for me in 1985. And the Dodgers had always tried to pound me inside, you know, soft stuff away and hard stuff in. And uh, I'd learned to turn on the ball and the work and stuff that I had put in with the help of a lot of people like Chuck Hiller and Dave Ricketts, who threw batting practice to me tirelessly. All of those things kind of came together. And I was just lucky that I had Jack Buck at the mic at the time and Smith. Corks one down the line, could go, may go, go crazy, folks, go crazy. The Cardinals have won the game by the score of three to two on a home run by the Wizard. And being a part of an iconic call like that or having someone like a Jack Buck or Ben Scully at the mic on those moments, I think just enhances the situation. And I was able to be a part of, of Cardinal lore. That was my moment. It was a great moment. I can remember. All I was trying to do in that situation was get the ball down in the corner. I'd learned to pull the ball in there from the foul line to about 25 feet out at Bush Stadium. Little guys had a chance to hit it out of the park. Well, I was trying to get that ball down in the corner. He supplied the power. I supplied the technique and history was made. And it wasn't until that moment that I think that people started looking at me as much more than just a defensive player. You were named uh, NLCS MVP. You know, sometimes when they say, you know, the greatest defensive player, Ever play it? You know, I looked at myself as as a shortstop, as right. a shortstop who could play on played on both sides of the ball. Yeah, and I and, and here again, I I don't think that uh, some people will say that. Well, you know, your defensive prowess, you know, you would have made the Hall of Fame just by defense. I don't think it was just defense. I think it was a it was it was a culmination of of both defense and offense that that allowed me to uh, to make it to the Hall of Fame. I will say this. You talk about your stolen bases. I mean, talk about a complete player. Not only could you hit, mm-hmm. not only could mm-hmm. you field, but you stole bases and you made uh, pitchers think about what you were going to do when you're on first and second. And the other thing, Oz, is that you were box office. It didn't matter if you were at the plate. It didn't matter <laughs> if you were on first or second. It didn't matter if you were in the field. You, yeah. were, you were one of the reasons people came to the ballpark. And I don't think you can say anything better about a player than that. Well, let me say this here. I think that on two occasions... On two occasions, I was the highest vote getter in the All-Star game. Right. So, you know, I think that speaks to more than being just a defensive player. And one of the greatest compliments is that I'm a Los Angeles Dodger fan or I'm a Cub fan. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I root for the, for the Cubs. I root for the Dodgers, but I'm a Mozzie Smith fan. It doesn't get any better than that coming from baseball people across the, the spectrum. Yeah, well, listen, I grew up in Cleveland, so I was an Indians fan, but mm-hmm. I was an, but I was an Ozzie Smith fan from the time <laughs> from the time. I mean, I can remember watching you uh, in 1983 on the baseball bunch. I'm Ozzie Smith, shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals, otherwise known as the Wizard of Oz. Hey, how come you're called the Wizard of Oz? How come? Well, maybe because of little things like this. Wow. And wanting my dad to go out and buy me a Cardinals jersey. Now here, 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 our family, you know, we're lifelong Indians fans. And my dad's like, what do you want with a Cardinals jersey? I'm like, jersey. dad, you got to watch this guy. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of Cleveland, you know, the, the people always ask me, they say, well, who do you think was this, that came close to you? I think Omar Vizquel was probably, we were both 
prototypical shortstops who were notably defensive players who worked hard to become better offensive players. And I think he was always my counterpart in the American League. Now, of course, Cal Ripken and, and Derek came up and were the guys over there winning gold gloves all the time. But I think Omar Vizquel probably possessed the same type of natural instincts that I was born with. And uh, I saw a lot of me in him. Yeah. Well, even though I'm an Indians fan, I still would take you, Oz. No, if well, I, thank if you. I, if I had to win one game, I mean, you were a Picasso with your <laughs> baseball glove. You still hold the record for the most double plays, 1,590 major league yeah. records for most assists by shortstop, stole more bases, 30 bases, nine different times, 15-time All-Star, world champion, 13-time gold glove winner, and an NL Silver Slugger, first ballot Hall of Famer. And what a privilege to have you here on the premiere of season four of the Lost Ballparks podcast. I cannot thank you enough for the time. All right. You're very well. Thanks for having me. Man, that was, a, that was a fun one. And again, one of those guys that I had been looking to get on the podcast since we started doing the pod, since the very first day that I started planning to do the podcast. He's one of the guys who was at the top of the list. I remember watching the 1994 All-Star Game. Do you remember that one? It was at Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh, and Ozzie Smith made an Ozzie Smith kind of play, diving into the hole to rob Chuck Knobloch of a hit. Knobloch hits one toward the hole. Ozzie gets the force! A definitive moment from the definitive shortstop of his generation and maybe in the history of the game. There were dozens of those kinds of plays throughout his career. Man, he was fun to watch play. Hope you enjoyed that one. Want to thank our producers, Briggs Buckingham, Mike Dunn, Maddie Saflakis, and Xavier Guerra. Look forward to talking with you again next week on the Lost Ballparks podcast.